Today, we're really excited. We're joined by Jermaine Murray. Obviously, in the show, we talk about starting your business, growing your business, and let's say you've got your product, you're starting to sell, and it's time to hire somebody. Well, we've got a recruiting expert here. Jermaine can talk us through the process of finding good talent, building a strong team, and you know, by the way, once you make that hire, now you've got a team to worry about. Jermaine's going to talk us through HR as well and really know that people are the key ingredient to scaling your business. So if you ever want to have more than one employee, this episode is for you. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Excited to chat. And first, we'll get out of the way. You're coming to us to the conversation today. You're based in Canada. Montreal, Montreal, Canada, to be specific, the uh, French part of, of Canada. But you work all over the world, though. You've got, from reading through the white papers and work you've put together, um, you've got obviously a big client base there, I'm sure. But I've seen that you've published uh, salary data and information about different countries, different cities all over the world. Do you want to tell us kind of what you're up to and, and, and what do you do? Just high level? Yeah, sure. So uh, for, for for the listeners, my name is Jermaine Murray. Online, you can find me as Jermaine Jupiter, all one word. And I like to say for job seekers, I'm the guy that can help you get your job. And for employers, I'm the guy that can help you build your team. Um, the funny thing is, is that um, in my day job, I, I do work at a company called Tandem Launch, where we build startups from the ground up. And from my time there, I can tell you that the that most businesses fail for two reasons. It's either a people problem or a money problem. And I, I specialize in the, the people aspect and allowing you to not only uh, grow your, your, your team so you can build your product, um, but also creating a culture where people want to work for you. And instead of having to spend resources actively recruiting, your brand is so strong and so well known that people seek you out. So can you tell us a little bit about Tandem Launch? What is that? What does Tandem Launch do? So Tandem Launch is an incubator, a startup incubator based in Montreal. The, we leverage um, IP from universities to enable entrepreneurs to create full-fledged uh, products for consumers, tech products. Um, you know, we have, for instance, we have companies where um, we were able to create a new type of microphone, uh, directional microphone that was very sensitive or a new type of headphones using graphene tape. Uh, we take innovation and we create it into a sustainable product for the mass markets. Really cool. So are you working more with, you said with universities, so are you pulling in people who are students looking to create their own companies as an incubator or is it really anybody in the tech field? It's really anybody in the tech field. We the, the, the Where the universities come in is that... Um, so we're very interesting that we're the only place in the world that has this type of business model. Um, we will make a deal with the university to license their technology, their IP, and we'll put it in a database. Um, then we will go and find people that have the characteristics that we like in a founder and uh, encourage them to work with us. And they'll go through our database, they'll pick, um, and our database has tons of IPs, they'll pick uh, a university IP that they're comfortable with, that they can envision a product and a market for, and they'll build, they'll build that product. We'll help them identify a co-founder. And once they have a 
uh, proof of concept that they're able to pitch, we'll then um, invest $600,000 Canadian into the business for them to build their product to a prototype. And from there, um, we help guide them uh, from prototype to Series A, where they're raising uh, funds. On average, we're, we're hoping that they raise uh, a couple million dollars so that they can go and they can really build out their products and, and really impact the world. At the end of the day, it's innovation that drives disruption. That's really cool. And so can you talk a little bit about what, so you work as a recruiter for them, you work on recruiting people into that program, right? Yep, yep. So I will... Um, so my job is to, A, primarily identify people that would be a good fit for this model. Um, I look for people, uh, two types of profiles. Either you're somebody that's very technical. So you spent a lot of time in academia. You're a PhD holder. And you're able to uh, speak directly to inventors about the nuances of their technology. Or you have a strong business sense. And you're, you're a good people person. And you're good at making relations and marketing and all the soft skill stuff that goes into building a business. Those are the two profiles that we pair together. Um, and I help identify people that fit one or two of those molds. But beyond that, I also help them a build out their hiring uh, practices and how they go about engaging and building their talent pipelines for hiring, um, while also helping them build inclusive cultures, inclusive uh, environments where people from all backgrounds can really be comfortable and thrive. Uh, but also, uh, teaching them how to interview, teaching them how to ask the right questions, teaching them how to assess technical abilities. I, I joked about this on Twitter earlier today. Um, I actually had to talk somebody out of a three-hour technical assessment um, just with my eyes over Zoom because I, I was like, I was like, what are you doing? What do you mean you want to give somebody a three-hour? Are you mad? That's <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was communicating with my eyes. Like I was. Just, Cause I, I was just processing it and like, he, he's like, okay, Jermaine, I can tell you don't like that. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll rethink it. And I was just like, <laughs> I was like, dude, man. Um, the thing about hiring and scaling, to be honest with you guys, is that people forget. And even for job seekers, the people at both ends of the table are people. And I think as a job seeker, you need to realize that it's your job to enlisted a certain sense of confidence from the person that's interviewing you. And on the flip side, as a, as a uh, employer, you're looking to showcase uh, and say to somebody why they would be a good fit in your environment, why they would be able to grow and why your goals are aligned, your business goals with their personal goals and, and why it's worthwhile for them to be there. Um, it's a relationship both ways. It's it, it's it's not a dynamic that one one side is in more control than the other. And if that's the case, just like with a regular relationship, that's a toxic situation that you should remove yourself from. Yeah. So you really work as a connector on both sides, right? I am the plug. You are the plug. So you also run your own business. You have Jupiter HR, right? That is correct. Um, so Jupiter HR focuses uh, again. It's it's a it's a dual approach. Uh, we we help candidates and we help uh, uh, employers identify people that can help them build and help them scale. Um, but Jupiter HR um, actually has a um, it has a specialization in surfacing black talent. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a person that is from the black community. I, I grew up in the, I grew up in Toronto. Um, and you know, I didn't grow up in the best of neighborhoods, uh, for a good portion of my life, but my parents tried their best. Um, but when I look back at my journey, I kind of have a, a bit of survivor's guilt because, um, 
there are a lot of people that growing up I thought were smarter than me, you know, um, that were going to do more. And just for one way or another, they didn't get the opportunity. And I, and I lucked out because um, I kind of fell into being in HR and it just wasn't a role that I, I, I thought was available because I didn't think I didn't see anybody that looked like me in it. Um, Jupiter HR looks to change that. We we want to get as many people of different communities, uh, specifically the black community in tech, so that young kids are able to see themselves in these roles and are able to, you know, go out and, and change the world, but also positively affect, affect their communities. And um, I put an emphasis on working with employers and working with companies that are really dedicated to doing that, you know, and I think um, right now the, the the conversation with how things are going is that we, we need to really look at um, things systemically from a more holistic approach and realize that there isn't just one defined way of doing things. I know it's, it's more nuanced, it's multifaceted, and the best way to make sure that we're properly equipped is by making sure that our um, our offices represent the global audiences that we're serving. That's really cool that you're providing those services. So I, I'm curious, you started in HR, right? Am I getting that right? Um, technically, no. I, I started in broadcasting. Oh, wow. Huh. So what inspired you to start uh, Jupiter HR? Because you, like, you mentioned that you want to help and serve these communities. So why jump from broadcasting to HR then? Or, or a, a service, like a consulting kind of thing? So... Um, I started out, I had, I actually had a show on Sirius XM talking basketball and it was, uh, it was a late night show, but you know, I was happy doing it. And then one day I went in and they're like, yo, Jermaine, I'm like, what's up? Um, like, yo, we're getting canceled. And I was like, we're getting what? And I was like, yeah, we're getting canceled. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I spent a lot of time trying to get back into broadcasting and I couldn't get, I couldn't break through the door. So I tried, um, I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe this isn't my path. Maybe, maybe I'm meant to do something else. Right. So I then try to do everything. And like, I went from broadcasting to like a number of different sales jobs. I worked in, I worked in a factory. I worked, I worked everywhere. I, I, at, at this point I have, or I've had over 30 jobs before I've hit 30. And, um, what made me start Jupiter HR is that somebody like, um, I was like, my friends are making a joke that, you know, um, I, I can get, I can lose a job on a Friday and pick up a new one by Tuesday. And, um, one of them made a joke about me, me helping them with their resume. And I was like, I, you'll bet swing it over. Um, and you know, we, I, I helped them realize, um, some of the mistakes that I learned from like my job process application and, and, and like really letting them know about, um, not making the common mistakes of, of, of not realizing that the entire, the entire process of, of hiring and, and jobs and looking for a job, it's a subjective process. And you're essentially trying to make a sales pitch, a value proposition, if you will. And if your resume is, a lot of people make the mistake of just making a resume that talks about the responsibilities instead of their impact, and they're not selling themselves effectively. And from when he was able to realize that, and we were able to, to make that on the resume, his um, he was able to find a new job within a week, to be honest. He, he had more offers than he could he know what to do with. Um, and so from there, I, I decided to specialize in, in building up resumes. And yeah, it just so happened, um, I was actually working at uh, Enterprise Truck Rental as a branch manager, managing my own branch. Like I said, I jumped I jumped to every single every single job I could, <laughs> and um, 
this recruiter calls me for uh, a sales job working construction. And I was like, okay, um, you know, tell me a bit more about it. And as he's like trying to convince me to, to like hear more about the job, I realized that he's, he's doing like a sales pitch. Like this is stuff that I would do to assess someone's needs. And um, this is what I would do to, to get the information to, to emotionally direct them into, uh, into a decision to buy from me. Cause people buy with emotion. They don't buy with, with, with logic. And I realized, you know what, since I'm doing the resume thing and this guy's pretty much trying to sell me on something, maybe I should look into being a recruiter. Um, and that's kind of how I, how I fell into it. And then it became, all right, so I'm helping, I'm, I was helping people directly placing them, but now I had a, a pipeline to employers and it was like, okay, so, um, let me tap into my community. Let me, let me try organizing stuff around my community so that uh, whenever I have an opportunity from an employer and I have a direct line of communication from a hiring manager, I could surface black talent, I could surface somebody that looks like me into that position there. And it'll work, but it'll work out because on the candidate side, like I'm surfing, I'm surfacing somebody that was having a hard time getting through the door. And from the employer side, not only are they hiring somebody that's qualified, but they're hiring somebody that can go a long way to diversifying their culture and setting them up for success in the long run. Um, because that's where we're going. We're going towards towards a global community and a global audience. And if you're trying to do business, you not you can't just cater to one section of the global any, of the global market anymore. It has to be everywhere. But how are you going to understand different perspectives if you don't have different perspectives on your team? Um, and that's kind of where the idea for Jupiter HR kind of took off. So when I made the decision to go from uh, working in an external agency to an internal one. Uh, I was able to uh, really separate my day job from my my, my Jupiter HR stuff, um, and now I'm I'm in a just really great position where I'm able to really uh, help people in a number of different ways. You know, I have startup founders reach out to me about um, helping them hire people, helping them identify uh, talent, but also helping, especially with what's going on now, helping them uh, be aware of their microaggressions or be aware of some of the sensitive things that a lot of the, a lot of people are protesting about systemic racism. It, it's nice that we're having the conversation about systemic racism because there are, there are people that um, don't, don't realize their conditioning. And a lot of microaggressions uh, happen because systemic racism has conditioned society to say that these acts are okay where like um you know a lawyer will tell you like there are two components of a crime uh mens rea and an actus rea mens rea means the guilty act the guilty mind and actus rea means the guilty the guilty act it's a difference between manslaughter and murder one you know hitting somebody by accident is a different from running someone down with your car um so I look at like the the way that systemic racism has conditioned society as uh, a bunch of guilty acts without the guilty mind, right? So we have to be aware of you know these microaggressions and these type of nuanced um, nuanced ways that we've been conditioned to accept things that are a violation of people's space and their and dehumanizes them essentially. Um, so I help companies realize you know. Where their where their biggest areas of opportunity is uh, in order to address those changes and to implement a culture, 
Um, because I'll tell you, I'll tell anybody here, one of the most expensive aspects of your business will be hiring people and, re- and retaining people. It's not cheap to hire people. No, it's so true. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that would look like when you're talking to a company? And I think most of our listeners are uh, people in small companies or they are founders or looking to start their own company. And maybe they're just at the point of hiring their first person, right? Let's let's say that it's, you know, somebody who just has this idea, I'm going to hire somebody. And what what kind of things should they keep in mind to make sure that it's a good culture? It's a safe culture. You know, they're they're trying to reduce or eliminate all these microaggressions that might occur and create for a toxic workplace. What would you recommend to them? So the first thing that I I would recommend is to get educated. Um I think I think, like I said, I, I think a big reason for a lot of microaggressions um, is that it's coming from a place of ignorance. You just like just not being aware. So uh, get educated in the sense of like what the most common forms of microaggressions are. Um, I did a thread on Twitter uh, about some like the most common forms of microaggressions. But um, one of my one of my friends and colleagues, Avery Francis, um, she actually went viral uh, over the past couple of weeks. Um, talking about her experience as a a mixed person um, growing up with systemic racism. And like, you know, people were saying things to her like, oh, you're so exotic or, you know, you're cute for a black girl. And it's like things like that. um, Again, place of ignorance, because if you, if you really, if you really knew how, um, how vile that actually sounds, you wouldn't say it. And if you did say it, then like, that's a different conversation. You're a different type of racist now. Um, so I would make, I would educate somebody in terms of what microaggressions are most common. And then it would be a discussion about um, just some of like the best practices uh, with just being aware of those microaggressions. Uh, and then it would be telling them like um, helping them just source their first couple of people. Right. Um, I think I think that actually plays a huge part into culture more often than not, um, making sure that you have a diverse culture as much as possible in the beginning goes a long way to preventing a lot of these problems from popping up. Like I said, um, it's a societal thing. So if we have a lot of people in the culture that are just conditioned to think a certain way and and have certain blind spots embedded in them, it can be. Um, it, it, it can make for an uncomfortable environment, and especially as a uh, as a black person, you know, you know that you unfortunately are have conditioned yourself to rationalize and uh, in a way enable people to to get away with these microaggressions by just saying, like, it's either not worth it or like, um, you know, they don't really mean it. They don't know any better. I and mean, I think the time now it's more of like just it's just time for everybody to get educated. So um what I would usually do, it's either a sit down and have an honest conversation if it's just like a, everyone's just like starting out and educating them about microaggressions and some of, like, some of the stuff in the black experience. If it's a larger organization, um, I jump into doing workshops and, and seminars and um, role plays as well. Oh, that's really cool. And I, I mean, I could see that as being as its own business, to be honest, like just helping in that aspect. Uh, yeah, on it. Well, it's it, it all tie it, it all ties in really well to like holistically who Jermaine Murray, Jermaine Jupiter is. Um, like I said, Jupiter. So Jupiter HR, um, 
you know, we, we have this mission in 2020 of happy, helping a um, hundred black people find new careers in tech. Uh, last year we did 67 and before COVID hit as of March 17th, we were at 42 year to date. I'm at 49. Um, so I, I can still, I'm still going to make my goal. Um, but the idea is, is that um, we can fix a lot of these problems just with adequate representation um, on all levels, not just like on the product team, but also in leadership and in decision making. Um, it, it, it all comes down, honestly, from from the top. And in order to give ourselves that diversified look or outlook in terms of like strategy and and in terms of the culture we're projecting and building, we got to make sure leadership reflects that. Right. And in some cases, if they don't reflect that, we need to make sure that leadership understands that. Absolutely. So, Jermaine, I want to just kind of a remark and I want to know if this is what you're hearing and you're seeing as well. I feel like the conversations around uh, diversity and inclusion are important and they've been important. But the the dialogue is moving to another level now. I think it seems like there's just more race consciousness and, you know, the idea of being anti-racist and being sort of proactive in addressing these things, that it's not enough to say as a company that we we seek to treat everyone the same way, but that instead what it seems like top talent and, you know, some of the smartest people I know are saying that what they want to see is that companies who are really being deliberate. Is that is that tracking with what you're hearing? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, um, because of how things have uh, so, so with Jupiter HR, whenever I've worked with a company, I've always asked them that um, when working with me, if you're, uh, you have to give my candidates feedback, but you also um, have to promise never to use the phrase "not a cultural fit" um, because it's just such a, a blanketed statement. And I, I recently had to actually put that in writing in all my proposals um, because of the way that the climate is uh, right now. The best talents, the top talents. Top talent's always going to be um, in demand regardless. But right now, the best talent is looking at what these, re- what your response is, what has been like. Um, and I think in the past, especially with the way technology has evolved, it's all too easy to make a social media post. It's all too easy to black out an icon and not really do anything about it. And we've, we've, we've seen it before. I mean, um, I'm pretty sure that Aunt Jemima has um, made like uh, changes and revisions to to the to the um, the mascot over the years because of pre- pressure from like you know the from society just how over the racist overtones, um, and I think again the the next stage for her to be revised was just to be completely eliminated, so. It's necessary for us to to have these conversations and everybody, like I'll tell you this, there are going to be a lot of people, black people, that when you call them for an interview, don't be surprised if one of your interview questions is, you know, what have you done to combat systemic racism? And it has to be something more than than just a social media post. You have to realize that a lot of, like for black people, we are in, in America and in Canada, we're, we're among the most marginalized groups um, in the world. And being marginalized means you don't have a lot of uh, infrastructure that society places in other communities to help increase your pipeline. You know, I'm sure you guys have heard about 
the uh, in in the states the school to prison uh, pipeline or, or the prison indu- industrial complex, and that's the infrastructure that's in place in black communities. Whereas you know the infrastructure we want is more, and this is where defund the police comes into place. It's like you know take away from the police budget and allocate it to the schools so that kids have computer labs and kids have up to date textbooks and kids have um, the opportunity to pursue STEM. And, P- and kids realize that these opportunities are not only worthwhile and fun, but they're also lucrative. You know, if you told me in 2000 that if I just stuck playing around on MySpace with HTML code, that could have been like a six, six, seven figure salary. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, what do you mean? But like that, 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 that infrastructure wasn't in place for like a large portion of my life. And I think, um, and that this is to wrap it around with the employers, you have to realize that that's, that's what marginalized groups lack. So it's the responsibility. If you're really about combating systemic racism is to put infrastructure in place where the black employees that come into your, your organization can acquire skills that will allow them to level up in their career even if that means that might not necessarily be with you. Yeah, I think that's a perspective. So, I mean, a hundred percent. And I think that's a perspective that employees should have across the board. Right. I mean, I think so often employers act like they, you know, all that matters is what someone does while they're with an employee as if, you know, people remember how they were treated when they work somewhere, they talk to their colleagues. They remember when they go on to new places of work, they remember why they left. Um, you know, when you treat people poorly, especially if they've already been through a lot, you know, they remember that. And I think, you know, especially with smaller businesses and founders, you know, you get a chance to write a new script. You're starting a new company. You get to author what the culture of that company is going to be like. And so as exciting as that is to say that, you know, we, you know, don't go into the office on Fridays and we have beer kegs and things like that. It's also a responsibility to author your business culture in different ways. And that's a responsibility that you have. You can't just sort of be brave in terms of your products, be brave in terms of, you know, breaking norms about whether or not people can wear flip-flops and, but then be a coward when it comes to addressing really serious social issues and, and sort of equity in the workplace. And I think that's an important uh, thing for founders to keep in mind. It's not all about your product. It's not all about your brand or your investors that you have sort of top to bottom ownership of what happens. You know, not to, um, not to, not to like um, plagiarize Mufasa, but it it really is a circle of life. Like, you know, one thing feeds into the other, like it's, it's all a holistic cycle, right? Like um, one by directly um, addressing the problem in one area, it's going to bleed into like other areas of your business. And, um, and I, and I gotta say like date, it's, it's actually, there's actually data behind it. The companies that are the companies that are the most diverse are the ones that are doing the best because they're the ones that are able to, like, again, it all comes down to being able to understand markets. Um, you, you guys are on Twitter and I, I'm sure you guys remember the, 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 the debacle that was the Pepsi commercial with Kylie Jenner. <laughs> yeah. So that that was yes. the the hot joke was um in like the black community was that we could tell that there were no black people in the room when they did that commercial because um somebody would have said or if there were they didn't listen to them because somebody would have said like yo no I'm going to tell you what's going to happen 
you're going to get roasted for this because this is a this is an issue that can't be fixed with giving somebody a Pepsi. And that's what you're saying. Hundreds of years of 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 a certain very serious conversation solved in one can with, you know, Bro. only 80 grams of sugar. Bro. And then and then when you when you actually <laughs> break it down, the hilarity of it is is that um I think there was only like maybe like I think there's like only like one outright black woman in there. So, so colorism and racial ambiguity is another aspect of um, systemic racism that's featured in Hollywood a lot. But there was only like one, um, one black woman, like, like uh, dark skinned black woman in the, in the whole thing. And as somebody that uh, Kylie rips off her wig and throws it at, and it's just like, bro, what, what are you thinking? But like, again, this is why, um, and this is how companies are going to really survive in this post-pandemic. Uh, like 2020 is just weird, but like the only way companies are going to be able to survive is is to be able to like listen to the different perspectives of different communities. And like again, this is where equity comes in. Equity means something completely different from equality. You know, you just want to make sure that people have enough equity, different uh, representation has enough equity in your organization, so that. When it comes to maybe there was a black person in that room, but maybe there's one black person and 49 other people in the room. And it's very easy to drown out that that voice. That voice doesn't have the same equity as the rest. So equity means making sure that um, there's either enough people with uh, to have a voice or that if there isn't enough people, the people that do have a voice, um, it carries weight, which is leadership again. Um but yeah, like this is this is this is a this is going to be an interesting time going forward, and organizations have to be aware of some of these risks. And uh, this is where the EDI conversations come in because, again, it's um like I said, I, I don't I, I don't believe that um I think the people that are horrified about what's been happening in terms of like police brutality, um. I think they're the ones that are really going to want to care about deprogramming and deconditioning and, and making sure that they're able to contribute to those healthy spaces. Um, because the reason why this conversation is so important is that things don't really get done until the people that um, aren't the over are overtly in the wrong are just things. Sorry, let me rephrase that things don't get done until like the line between right and wrong is less blurry. It needs to be just outright for lack of a better term, uh, black or white, or just binary, just right or wrong, right? The more clearly, clearly we're able to define those sides, um, the, the, the easier it is, I feel like it'll be to help people deprogram and realize like, okay, this is a, this is a very deep conversation I need to have with myself and reflect on the environment that I'm contributing to. Yeah, that's so true. If you're in charge of a company, it, it, a lot of it falls on you. Like you're in charge of culture too. Most definitely. Um, how you're hiring, how you're listening, and even like um, your marketing, to be honest, as well, like it says a lot. It says it doesn't say it doesn't say much, but when you look at it as a whole, it says a lot. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to hiring, because you mentioned hiring, um, what what can you know a founder or a manager looking to hire somebody? What can they do to entice good talent when or good talent and diverse talent when you when it's really hard to compete with like your Googles and your Microsofts because they're like we can pay you $150,000 a year because you're just out of school and we need programming help and you're you know you scored so well like like they have so many great benefits that suck up all this great talent what can somebody who's just starting a business and hiring do what do you recommend I think it all comes down to so I say this to job seekers and I say this to uh, employers 
put yourself in the other person's shoe or ask yourself, what could I do to make this person's life easier? Right. That's always, that's always a good thing to go. Um, so the reason why as an employer, you would want to ask that it's in order to, because we know financially, you're not gonna be able to compete with a Facebook or a Google, you know, no, and even it, no matter like there's only a certain tier of people that could actually really compete with a Facebook or a Google on a, a both a financial and a technological standpoint. So you need to get your value proposition in order. Okay. If you're first, first you want to figure out what kind of profile you want to target, you know, maybe targeting the the students that Google and that, that Fang is basically going right after um, might not be the smartest idea. Um, and just for FYI, Fang is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, like those Titans. Um, we just grouped them together as Fang. Um, so maybe instead of going after, maybe after going after, instead of going after like three grads, maybe you're better off going after one one mid, uh, a mid uh, mid to intermediate developer or or, or professional that um, that might be a bit jaded or or might be looking for something more than a paycheck, you know, because you have to ask yourself what what can you offer. And as a small organization, the advantage you have over a Facebook or a Google is that you're you're infinitely more agile and than they are. You know, you're able to make quicker decisions. You're able to. Um, like you're able to be more fluid with how you're structured. And uh, that's the ironic thing is that Fang is what set up the template for all this fluidity. But when you get to a certain size, you have a certain number of uh, shareholders involved. There's only so much you can do before you start, before they start talking about axing you. Um, so, so what I would, what I would suggest is that you take advantage of that agility, you know, maybe, maybe the, maybe it's offering the grad, you know, maybe not a salary as high, but something that might be, might be uh, closer to the market, but maybe they get, uh, they get extra shares or maybe, you know, you're able to work something out with the schedule, or maybe you let them have control of their schedule, or maybe you're able to offer them uh, a more clear path towards leadership. You know, I always tell people you need to figure out what the other person's goals are, whether you're you're hiring or you're applying, right? What are the what are the goals of of you, the other person at the end of the table, and then let me speak to these goals and why I can help you get there. You know, um, my my goal in the next five years is to become a, a, a VP of talent and have like direct influence over a company's organization, uh, over, over a company's uh, building of their culture. When I was going for my job at Tandem Launch, I told them that that was my goal. And they said to me, you'll be able to build companies from the ground up and their culture um, through through this opportunity. You'll be able to do X, Y, and Z, and you'll be able to get the, the, um, the opportunities that are available to you. Um, but also being part of like a small organization, there are opportunities to use my other skill sets like um, – I make a, a podcast for a tandem launch. I'm effectively somehow back in radio, you know, <laughs> um, and I'm and I'm technically getting paid for it, right? But I don't think I don't know if um, when I was working at bigger companies, if they would have thought that that skill set would have been useful to them, or they would have uh, trusted me with doing a project like that because I wasn't in- affiliated with their uh, their marketing team. So you got to leverage the unique opportunities available to you um, as a small organization and just what you're able to do. And, and you, you, you can be very creative. Um, and also just know, like, 
just because they're giants, like Fang can't hire everybody. Right. That's so true. And I, I think you touched on something really good there. Of like you can put forth that, you're, hey, you're a small business. So one of the things that attracted me to working for a, when I jumped from a large organization to, you know, a 150 person company um, was exactly what you're talking about. Like I can wear multiple hats and also like I can help be a much I can be a much bigger part of influencing culture there. Right. I, I My voice is now heard by upper management because I'm two layers removed from the CEO, not 12. Um, and I think that's a big draw, even if you, you know, lose out on some money. Exactly. Um, at the end of the day, you all got to look at it as like a, it's a, it's an investment, honestly, into the business in some form or the other, you know, whether it's like you're, you're able to directly acquire the talent or you're able to, uh, brand yourself for future opportunity because, you know, the, the market, the, the talent market changes every single day. You know, every single day is a new opportunity for somebody to either get fed up with their role, to get fired, to quit, for a company to, to shut down. I mean, March 15th, difference between March 15th and March um, 17th, 2020, it's like night and day because <laughs> that's when the pandemic really opened up, right? So you never know what the next day holds. So you want to be smart with how you, you go about these things because like you said guys earlier, people talk. Right. Uh, in fact, the people that you often reject or the people that often don't go through with the opportunities are the ones that are the most vocal. Speaking of being vocal, you mentioned your podcast. I've listened to it on Spotify. I've already learned quite a bit. Why don't you plug that? Let us know about the show. What do you talk on there? I think it's really interesting that the perspective you have, especially, you know, with these venture backed and sort of high, higher growth companies. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't, let me just shamelessly plug the podcast. <laughs> go, go for it. So um, Tandem Launch, has, we've launched a podcast called, okay, let me rephrase this because, okay, so we have a podcast called The Launch by Tandem Launch, which is why I had to change that sentence, that Tandem Launch launch podcast called Tandem Launch is The Launch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the podcast is about, um, we're looking at the different a- aspects and elements uh, that goes into creating startups. Um Right now, the first season is about how COVID-19 has impacted our ecosystem. And um, we've had some really, like I said, uh, Tandem Launch's uh, portfolio companies are really diverse. You know, we have play- we have companies that have, um, we have companies that are in the artificial intelligence space that are doing totally different things. Like um, we have a company called SportLogic that makes artificial intelligence for a sports betting platform. You know, um, we have our official intelligence company that's reshaping how drones uh, consume fuel. Uh, we have a company that uses, this is really cool, actually. So the first episode is actually with uh, a, com- uh, a company's a CEO uh, called um, Stratacent. And the, com- and the founder's name is Ashok. And that company makes a uh, basically a cybernetic nose that was initially made to smell chemicals. And then it's kind of repivoted to... Uh, it's something that would be installed in your fridge to let you know when your groceries are going bad. And now it's kind of pivoted to being a, a potential solution and helping identify people with COVID-19. Wow. Um, and that's the beauty of like the, the innovation startup sector. Like, as I mentioned, fluidity is a thing, you know, being agile, being able to pivot as an entrepreneur, um, we can't be stagnant. You know, we, we can't be stuck in, in one, one way of thinking, uh, we we got to be able to be flexible and to and to move. And uh, again, this is what really attracted me to work with Tandem Launch is that you get to see um, how people in different industries have to be fluid 
because not, not only are they pursuing uncharted territory, there it's also in competitive markets. Uh, it's it's also uh, heavy, like a lot of competition. Um, there's just a lot in terms of like manufacturing complications. Like there's a lot that goes in there, and then you, and then you you involve like everything that comes with the VC. So the the launch gives you this type of perspective on what it's like to be a startup founder, what it's like to get the attention of an investor, what it's like to be an investor, and what it's like to um, become a successful tech startup entrepreneur and founder. And um, I have a lot of fun doing these episodes. That's really cool. Uh, and so you get to go back to broadcasting, which is, you know, you get to have the best of both worlds now. Um, I've, got a, I've got a question that kind of goes back to, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, lots of research. We know that having a more diverse group helps companies, helps them create better things. You get more perspectives. You know, the, the, the you know, Pepsi really should have had somebody in the room tell them, you know, maybe this isn't such a great idea before running that ad. So, you know, if you're looking at hiring somebody, one of the things I've run into with other companies is that they don't know how to get a diverse group of applicants, right? You post something on a job board and you get a bunch of white dudes who apply and that's your applicant pool. What would you recommend for companies to, you know, diversify their applicant pool? Like what, who can they talk to? What can they do? How do you change things to that you get, you know, more applicants from a diverse crowd? So, right. Uh, so shameless plug. I uh, talk to me, <laughs> um, <laughs> but in a, uh, in a less shameless manner, um, there are actually organizations set up all around the world that are dedicating to helping um, individuals from certain communities, marginalized communities, uh, get opportunities or just to be connected. Um, uh, I, as a, I'm, I'm obviously I'm part of the black community, but I'm part of several organizations across the world um, that are basically a coalition of black professionals that share opportunities, share insights. Um, but also we try to leverage our connections to, to get people in the space. So honestly, affiliating with uh, organizations like that would be a good place to start. Um, I also think that it, I also think there's a huge opportunity for organizations to partner with charities um, uh, that are looking to address the, the pipeline issue from an early age, from like, um, uh, from like preschool or, or younger, like there's an organization in Toronto called the Visions of Science that I consider myself an unofficial advocate for because an unofficial spokesperson, because I've never had a conversation with them, but I love what they do. And any chance I get to tell people to donate to them, I do. Um, what they do is that they take kids um, in under and marginalized areas in, in like uh, low income neighborhoods and they create the, they give them opportunities and the, the facility access to facilities to pursue uh, different projects in STEM and to introduce them to STEM um, from early, you know, in like fun ways. Like you got, did you guys ever do robotics in, in like in school? I wish, I wish there was a first program, you know, when I was growing up um, and it's such a cool program. And so I'm, I'm guessing it's something like that. So it's, it's, it's stuff like that. Um, when, when I was going to school here, we, we had a robotics week where we had, we had specialists from our science, our science center come in from, uh, to Toronto science center and they would teach us about robotics. Well, these people help put these programs on all year round. Um, and just side note, I, unfortunately the, and they only offer this once in your entire, uh, life as a student in Ontario, um, in the school that I went to at least. And I got the flu the week that they did it. No. And oh, no. I was 
so upset because when I got back, my friends were racing their their little like robotic cars, right? Like it's like it's like I ain't, I didn't really have anything, and I, I was I was upset. But um, you know, I wish Vision of Science was was there to 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 give me an extra opportunity to go and make my own my own little my own little robot robot uh, robotic car. Um, but an organization would want to sponsor and and pay attention to a platform like that because. It it gives you credibility in the space going for in the going uh, going forward, and that's what's going to come down to in in order to attract the top talent is like your credibility for like social causes. You know, when on the side of history, what side are you on, right or wrong? Right, like I, I, I'm a, I'm an NBA fan, and right now um, I feel for people that live in New York and that identify as Knicks fans because. 29 teams in the NBA, 29 out of the 30 teams in the NBA said Black Lives Matter, and one organization didn't. Ooh. And it's just like, dude, it's like, you know, like, just like, I, I think of that as a recruiter. I'm like, I would hate to be uh, the talent acquisition team for, for that organization trying to convince all stars to come play for me. You know, the organization's already been historically bad for the last 20 something years, but now we we got this on top of it. Like, how am I going to how am I going to attract a LeBron? How am I going to attract like a alt like a uh, like a, a Kawhi? How am I going to do that? They're going to think that uh, that this organization is trash because it's trash. And that's how you're going to look if if you're if looking back at this particular moment, you're on the wrong side of history. People are going to look at you like you're trash. And if you have a reputation for being trash. You know, you don't have many options, especially when it comes to like selling your product or attracting talent. At the end of the day, the best case scenario, once you, once you have a stained reputation, it's there. And my dad always said, um, you can tell, uh, you, you, my dad always said, uh, uh, the only time a business can survive when something has tarnished its brand, it's a completely rebrand of something else. Um, and like, we're in a day and age where you can't just do a simple rebrand because it's just a who is search to find out who like who the owner is and like you're back to square one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so it's funny you say the Knicks and you know we talked we talk about this idea of you know if if there's if you're getting something so wrong like equity within an organization, chances are you're you're probably getting other things wrong too, right? Like that's so foundational to what it means to run a good business and not not just a good from a profit perspective but like a morally good business right and and it's no surprise that it's the Knicks I mean I I grew up in the New York City uh, area I was born in New York City I grew up a Knicks fan they haven't been good in forever they are running that franchise into the ground they don't know how to do I mean I'm sure there's some really good hard-working people there as far as I can tell the problem is at the very top of the organization with the ownership and uh, on some level you're like if you had to guess I mean I can tell you what the, the Raptors, they got Messiah up at the top. I mean, he knows what he's doing. That's a well-run organization. Just won a championship. And it's like, you got to figure out a way to run a winning organization. And if you can't get the basics right, you're not going to get the much more complicated things right, like entering new markets or introducing new products. Uh, you know, the basic idea that you have to respect people, <laughs> that's table stakes. That's just showing up to work and figuring that out. And it's no surprise to me that the Knicks and the ownership there I, I honestly, yeah. Um, I, I, I feel for, it's just crazy, man. Cause, uh, in basketball, New York city is, is, it's what we, it's, we call it, we call it the Mecca, right? It's like, um, 
a lot of like a lot of crazy talent has come out of has come out of New York City. Like Michael Jordan was born in Brooklyn, um, for instance, and like he he grew up he grew up in the South, but like it's just like it just has this 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 uh this reputation for being like the birthplace of of basketball in the sense of like its popularity increasing and like the Knicks have you said it they haven't they haven't been they haven't been good in like since like Patrick since like 95 98 maybe and they still rank as like the top like top 3 top 5 most valuable franchises in the NBA um and it blows my mind because they're so poorly run yeah i mean i remember i grew up rooting for those teams Patrick, yeah. John, uh, yeah. Patrick Ewing, John Starks. I mean, I remember those teams. I remember rooting yeah. for them growing up, 100%. You know, one thing I do want to want to kind of pivot to, like kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So you've got those big organizations, but, you know, you, you something that really struck, struck a chord with me when you said, you know, this time in history and you really want to be in the right place. Can you, do you have any examples of, you know, small steps, small organizations, individual founders, um, things that people have done where you're like, Hey, you know what? That shows that your business is thinking about this, right? Because, you know, these big mega corporations that are saying they're going to pledge a hundred million, you know, th- that's all fine and well, but I'm, I'm curious if you've seen anything at the, at the small scale, um, that, that really resonated with you and that you feel like other people would see that. Um, that. I think it co- for, for me, uh, personally for a small, or- if you're a small organization, um, I think so for any organization, I think the first thing people are going to do when they want to see, like, if you're about diversity is to look at what your, your, your leadership looks like, what, like what the makeup of your leadership is. And this is, this might be a, this is, this is, this is a tricky thing because you're balancing, um, what's logical and what's like, um, uh, like a, like a social justice cause, so to speak, like, um, like right now, uh, for instance, MLSE, the company that owns the Raptors, they put out a, a posting for a, somebody in senior in a senior leadership position, and it was for the head of diversity and inclusion. And like I, I'll tell you this as a black person, on one side, it's like, yeah, awesome, like definitely glad that you're serious about this. Uh, you know, you own the Raptors, so we know that this is part of your values, and like you know, you really you're really serious about making change. And the flip side, it's like, damn, you're just going just, just to give the diversity role to the black guy, huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. What about marketing? What about CFO? What about any it, of the it, other? Exactly. So you kind of like, right. I, I, like you, you kind of have to find, find out what makes sense and but also like what the optics are, because that's the that's kind of the beauty of protests. Right. It's that it shows protests are supposed to elicit an emotional response. I've actually been surprised that some of, not surprised, but like I was pleasantly, I was pleasantly surprised that some of my friends that I didn't consider very political, um, they were out protesting after like the third day of protest. It's just like they couldn't ignore it anymore. And it's just like, they're, they're getting hit with like all of this stuff about, about George Floyd and about police brutality. And then they start, they start emotionally connecting to their own experiences or to people that were close to them that had those experiences. And I'll tell you guys right now, as a, as a black, as a black man growing up, this is a shared, this is a shared universal experience. Um, that's also kind of united the the world in these protests. Every single black parent has a conversation with their black kid 
about relationships with the police and relationships with employers and relationships with teachers. And they're basically warning us about the system and how it's designed to be set up against us. When I was young, my mom used to say that I, I had two and a half strikes against me. She and She's Jamaican, so she's merciless. She was like, um, son, you're, you're black, you're a boy, and you're fat. You have so much working against you. Um, people are going to be biased. Um, people are going to be biased against you because of, of your, your weight. You know, they're, they're, they're not, they're going to, they're going to be mean to you. People are, um, people are, aren't going to think you're, you're as smart as you are. They're, they're, they're going to think you're dumb and any, any type of, uh, uh, educational success you have, they're going to account it as a fluke. And, my mom was like, uh, my dad is a, is a, is a darker skinned individual. And my mom used to hate me playing in the sun because I would tanning at dark. And she, you know, she explained to me the other day, she was just like, I just know that the darker your skin, the more of a threat you're perceived as. And, you know, it's, it's chilling. It's chilling hearing um, John Boyega, the dude from Star Wars, talking about having that same conversation with his mom. It, it's crazy hearing um hearing like people like my dad's friends who are like in their 60s and 70s talking about having those conversations with their parents back in the day and it's like this is such a a shared experience that you know it's becoming clear as day like we have some real real problems and we like we really have to we really have to like sit back and, and like really take stock on like how things have gotten this bad. And I, and I encourage people to read Martin Luther King's uh, letter from Birmingham jail, where he kind of articulates that uh, the people that sit by and do nothing are worse than the people that are committing the, the atrocities. He said that, you know, people that are, that are just okay with just living in the, living with the system and not rocking the boat are worse than the KKK that were lynching people because you know, you know where you stand with the KKK, but with the like the the the, the people that are on the fence or the people that uh, try not to rock the boat, you a don't know where you stand, and b um, you don't know how to emotionally engage them for them to see your problem as as a human problem and not just like a as a black problem. Absolutely, and I think that you know we this show we talk about uh, technology and business, but you know we want to have this conversation. Because this is the conversation that everybody is having right now. And like none of these things are easy. And, and I will say personally, just the idea of considering whiteness, what does that mean? Uh, white supremacy, what does that mean? Um, there's a lot of deep, intense questions. And, you know, I really appreciate you totally leveling with us and sharing your perspective. Uh, you know, I think that it's something that there's a lot of learning happening. And I think that some people, you know, they, they want to pretend like, you know, they're, they don't see color, that they're race blind. And I just think that it, th- this is the time to be conscious about it and to hear about people's lived experience and to just get some direct perspective on what it's really like and the effort that it's going to take for us to move forward. And not only in the United States, but obviously this is, these conversations are happening around the world. Um, I think it's hard, but I, I'm hopeful and I, and I hope that that's not naive. Um, and I appreciate you just sharing, uh, how you see it, because I know that this is intense and it's personal and it's emotional 
And obviously, you know, we love talking about the business stuff. We love talking about recruiting. Um, but thanks for just being open about these things too. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a my pleasure. And thank you guys for, uh, you know, creating a space where I felt comfortable enough to, um, to, uh, to share this. And like, I, you know, one quote that I, I picked up from, from watching Boardwalk Empire, um, the a character said, it's business. Of course it's personal. What else could it be? And, um, you know, in context, he's about to shoot somebody. Um, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I looked at it and I was like, at the end of the day, like, um, business is personal because people only do business with people that they like. And at the end of the day, businesses are relationships. Like how you manage your business is how you manage your relationships with your customers, your employees, and with your investors. Um, so I think I'm, I'm happy that we were able to have this conversation and I hope that, uh, your audience find it worthwhile. And, um, you know, thank you guys for, for having uh, this talk with me you guys. have been It's been great. Like time kind of just flew by to be honest. Absolutely. I, I know that we are going to have folks who want to hear this. I've got uh, clients who have been really looking inward and saying, Hey, what can we do? There are some conventions, naming conventions in the hardware world. Uh, oh, the, de- the DevOps straight stuff. Up offensive, yeah. You know, the, uh, and yeah, yeah, the DevOps stuff. And, you know, so I've got clients that are talking about this. I know people are thinking about it. Um, we've talked about it uh, here and there. Um, and so I know that there's going to be interest in this. And and there's there's more to come on that. The open source hardware. So if you, know, so if you listen to the show, you know that we tend to talk a lot about hardware stuff. The Open Source Hardware Association has been doing some really interesting work. Uh, the company Adafruit in, uh, in New York has also done some pretty interesting stuff. Um, so, it, you know, if you think your company is immune from this or that you're that this isn't your problem, you know, look around because some of the most respected people in the hardware community are taking this really seriously. Um, and uh, and obviously not just in hardware, but know that this is uh, this is our fight, too. Um, Sean, I don't know if you had anything else for Jermaine here before we wrap. No, this has been absolutely fantastic. Jermaine, thank you so much for you know, telling us your story, your perspective on things. Um, I think for me, you know, I've been quiet. You know, the 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 quote you mentioned about the letters from Birmingham Jail are just I I need to go back and read those. I remember probably studying those in high school, but it's worthwhile and a good time for me to go back and look at those. And you know, looking at my own actions and what I do on a day to day basis, and discovering your own biases is one of the hardest things you can do. And actively working to fix those to make it a better place for people. Um, I think, you know, both as an individual and I think companies and I, what Harris is talking about for companies looking inwards and, you know, really trying to make things better is, I think, um, a really good thing. So, uh, Jermaine, thank you so much. I, I, I can't express it enough. Thank you guys for having me. And honestly, uh, stay safe. And uh, yeah, like uh, keep doing your thing, you guys. This is this is an amazing platform that you guys have. And I'm looking forward to, to hearing more episodes. Thank you. Follow Jermaine when you're looking to hire. Follow his advice. Check him out on Twitter. Uh, hiring is very hard. I've been on the hiring side a ton. It is not easy. He will make it easier. Follow him. And thanks for listening. Awesome, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skull Riza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash Routine.